Well, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another at-home edition of our Banner Lecture Series. I'm Adam Scherer. Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions at the Virginia Museum of History and Culture. So glad you could join us today uh, for what I think is going to be a, a really riveting program. Um, as always, we, we like to start by thanking you, our members, that make these programs possible. Uh, we could not do this without you. Your support is uh, deeply appreciated. Uh, just a reminder uh, that uh, There'll be a Q&A session uh, after our speaker, uh, so be sure to log into Facebook or YouTube to ask a question, uh, which will pop up in our in our chat room. Uh, so before I introduce today's speaker, I just want to uh, go through a couple of upcoming programs. I think that'll be exciting, uh, and I uh, hope that everybody will have an opportunity to to mark their calendars for these uh, coming up on November seventh at 10 a.m. Uh, is Food You, Familiar Faces, Different Spaces. This is part of our uh, continuing partnership in the Fire, Flower, and Fork program, which is now in its seventh year. Uh, and of course, this year uh, will be an all virtual program. Uh, this particular program will be a half day program of talks where participants can view interviews with chefs, authors, and journalists discussing their unique insights on cuisine, cooking, and finding truth through food. So that'll be a very exciting program, I think. Uh, on November 7th uh, at 7 p.m., we'll continue our movie myth-busting program. Uh, we'll be featuring the film Harriet. Uh, you can watch the film uh, in advance at your leisure and then log into the interactive Zoom presentation, which is at 7 p.m., where we'll chat about what's true and what's not and make some, I think, interesting connections between the film and uh, our collections at the VMHC. Uh, on November 13th at noon, we will continue our Curators at Work program, uh, where we'll be talking about the watercolor in Virginia. Uh, hopefully most of you know that uh, we are now hosting the 41st annual exhibition of the Virginia Watercolor Society's program, uh, which features 80 works from across the state. So please be sure to come into the museum and take a look at those. In this particular program, our curators are gonna look at uh, the treasures that we have in our collection related to Virginia watercolors. Uh, most people probably aren't aware of fact that we have a very robust collection, uh, about 600 pieces in our collection. Uh, so uh, please stay tuned for that program. And then finally, our next banner lecture, which will be next week, uh, November 10th at noon, uh, where, when Peter Henriquez will be here to talk about his book, What Made George Washington Tick. So on to today's banner lecture. I'm very pleased to introduce Dr. Christian Keller, who is a professor of history at the U.S. Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania where he teaches courses on the theory of war and strategy, national security policy and strategy in the American Civil War. He is the author and co-author of several books uh, focusing on ethnic experiences in the Civil War, including Chancellorsville and the Germans, Nativism, Ethnicity and the Civil War Memory, and Damn Dutch, Pennsylvania Germans at Gettysburg. He's with us today to talk about his most recent book, 
the great partnership, Robert E. Lee, Stonewall Jackson, and the fate of the Confederacy, which was the recipient of the Douglas Southall Freeman History Award in 2020. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Christian Kelly. Thank you, Adam. And uh, thanks also to Graham Dozier for uh, setting this up. Uh, I am very honored and very happy to be speaking at the Virginia Historical Society, as it used to be called. Uh, and uh, I have done a great deal of research uh, in its uh, storied archives and halls, and a great deal of my work uh, emanates from that research in your archives. So I want to thank you very much for that opportunity uh, then, uh, which has led to this opportunity now. Uh, before I, I go further, I have to state my uh, Department of Defense disclaimer, which I must do before every one of my talks. Uh, anything that I say here is not representational of the Department of Defense, the United States government, uh, the U.S. Army or the U.S. Army War College. The views I express are mine and mine alone. Uh, I don't think too many of them will be controversial uh, as uh, we're dealing with history here. Uh, but a new interpretation, I think, uh, which uh, I believe the audience will find interesting. So my book is about the relationship between Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson in the American Civil War. Uh, and it uh, deals with the friendship of the two men, which has been underplayed until really my book uh, in most of the historical literature. Uh, there was an understanding they had a, a friendly relationship, but my research at Virginia Historical Society and other places indicated that that relationship was deeper than previous scholars have perceived. Uh, and uh, Douglas Southall Freeman uh, did point towards this, but uh, even he didn't uh, go into great depth on it. And so my book is based around this friendship uh, between the two leaders and all of the effects that came from that friendship. And uh, there are four theses to the book uh, and, and one kind of overarching so what for today, if you will. Uh, the first thesis is that there was a strong friendship between Lee and Jackson and that it was underpinned by a great deal of professional respect, mutual trust, uh, and uh, uh, that uh, their religious connection that they had uh, was an underpinning itself to the friendship. The friendship, in turn, greatly bolstered their professional working relationship. The second thesis deals with that relationship and argues that uh, they were primarily responsible between the two of them for the most successful elements of Confederate strategy in the Eastern theater in the Civil War, uh, up until Jackson's death, which uh, then broke that down. And uh, without Jackson, Lee uh, was hard placed and hard put to be able to uh, recreate his earlier victories. Uh, and uh, the third thesis has to do with Jackson. Uh, and it essentially states that Jackson was himself a strategic level leader as we would understand it today. And I'll define uh, strategy for you here shortly. Uh, but Jackson is thinking at the war winning level, which is a basic definition of strategy. Uh, just like Robert E. Lee is, and uh, was even more radical uh, than Lee in his ideas on how to win the war for the Confederacy, uh, and uh, ultimately uh, was influential on, on Lee's thinking about uh, theater strategy in the East uh, before his death. Jackson's death, the fourth thesis, deals with that, 
was a massive strategic contingency point for the Confederacy. And by that, I mean, uh, it was an event that was recognized throughout the seceded South uh, as uh, a harbinger of very bad things to come nationally. Uh, this is, is after the victory at Chancellorsville. Uh, and uh, people understood from Virginia the whole way to Texas, uh, from politicians as high ranked as Jefferson Davis and the Secretary of War to little children. Uh, the research indicated that uh, this was seen as a major inflection point in Confederate fortunes, uh, which uh, in many ways supports an old cliche that uh, has been uh, hammered about by historians for years, and that is that, well, if Jackson had been at Gettysburg, then uh, things might have been different. Well, um, as I argue in the last chapter in my book, and I'll touch upon a little bit today, uh, I don't think the battle would have been at Gettysburg. I think the whole character of that campaign would have been vastly different if Jackson had survived his accidental wounding in the Virginia woods west of Fredericksburg on May 2nd, 1863. Uh, and uh, underpinning these four big theses is uh, an overarching uh, observation that I think uh, modern leaders and anyone who serves as a leader in an organization of any type might be able to take away and, and apply. Uh, and that is uh, the criticality of the strategic leader, strategic advisor relationship. Uh, Jackson served not just as Lee's right hand man operationally, but also uh, as a theater strategic advisor uh, for what would be done in the Eastern theater. And Lee turned to him regularly for that advice. And when Jackson dies, Lee loses that. He gets a replacement to a degree with James Longstreet, uh, but Longstreet and Lee did not have the relationship that Jackson and Lee had and, and enjoyed. It was a different relationship. Uh, so uh, I wanted to just outline those major theses up front so we all know uh, what I'm going to be talking about. And uh, what I'd like to do now is uh, turn to my slideshow and uh, walk you through first some basics on classical strategic theory as we teach it at the War College and as it's taught at senior service colleges around the United States. Uh, the book is rooted in many of these concepts, and it helps you understand just how significant this relationship, this great partnership was uh, for the destiny of the Confederacy. So without further ado, I'm going to uh, call up my, uh, my slideshow here and, uh, and continue onward. So when we're looking at strategy and leadership at the strategic level, uh, we are uh, talking about uh, a number of major theories uh, that I think are fairly significant, uh, very complex in their simplicity, uh, frankly, and, and some listeners may be aware of this, uh, and some may know some of these theories and not others. The first one that I would bring to everyone's attention is this great statement by uh, the great Prussian philosopher of war, Karl von Clausewitz, war is merely the continuation of policy by other means. In other words, war is a political act. And as we're going to discuss today, both Lee and Jackson keenly understood that, though neither had read Clausewitz, which was not translated into English uh, until uh, the 1870s and really wasn't taught at West Point uh, until much, much later. But they intrinsically understood this truism of war, which I think it applies to any war, whether it be modern 
or uh, historical. The stool there uh, represents the ideas of ends, ways, and means, the primary building blocks of any strategy of any time or any place. And uh, think very basically here of ends as objectives and means as all the resources that uh, a nation has to put into achievement of those objectives. And I counsel my students at the War College, think broadly about means. Uh, it doesn't just mean armies and navies uh, and uh, resources one can extract from the ground. Uh, this also includes things like leaders. Uh, there are limited numbers of good strategic level leaders, something the Confederacy very keenly felt uh, with the death of Jackson and, and then going forward to the end of the war. Ways or the concepts are really the kicker here for strategy. They connect the means to the ends. And the ways are how you actually put together uh, a theater strategy or an operational strategy that will utilize available means to achieve uh, the objectives that uh, your policymakers have set forth or that you have advised the policymakers to accept, which was often the case with Robert E. Lee. Uh, and uh, it's often in the ways that wars are lost, or sometimes the ends are too lofty uh, and or the means are too scarce. But you can succeed as a weaker nation in war if your ways are superior to your adversary that may or may not be stronger uh, than you are. And so the Confederacy had a fighting chance. I definitely believe that. And I think the Lee Jackson team gave it its best chance because they understood not only the Clausewitzian theory, but also the basics of strategy as outlined by that uh, stool. Strategy deals with war winning and uh, war losing ideas and, uh, and instruments. And uh, at the war colleges, we teach that uh, there are essentially four great elements or instruments of power, diplomatic, informational, under which intelligence falls, military and economic. Uh, sometimes the diplomatic is conflated with political. Um, I tend to think that, that, that the political is on top of these other instruments, but uh, that's, that's a semantic debate that we don't need to get into here. And I bring up the dime for you, uh, just so you understand that uh, the Confederacy is like modern states at war, uh, trying to harness all four of these in an effective and integrated manner. Uh, they did not do it as well as the Union did, obviously, uh, and uh, the result is the Union victory of the war. However, Lee and Jackson understood all four of these aspects of the instruments of national power, which apply again uh, to old wars and historical conflicts just as much as they do to modern wars. I have another book coming out uh, by University Press of Kansas this spring that will go into greater detail on the Confederacy's dime. Uh, so look for that uh, probably uh, no later than June. War also has levels, which is demonstrated by those three interlocking circles. And in fact, the tactical or the battle level of war, which most viewers should be familiar with, uh, these would be the finite uh, uh, battles that occur uh, that we often spend a lot of time reading about, Gettysburg, Chancellorsville, Antietam, they exist within a greater sphere called operations. 
often discussed as campaigns. And uh, for example, the Gettysburg campaign or the Pennsylvania campaign consisted of several operations, not just the great battle at Gettysburg. Uh, and the strategic uh, level of war, of course, is what I've already described, the war winning level. And the interesting thing, uh, as I argue in the book, is that Lee and Jackson very well understood as well this basic uh, interrelationship of the three levels of war and that it was possible for tactical, let alone operational level events, to influence the strategic level of war. Uh, a, a great tactical victory, for instance, could very easily uh, influence the course of the war, something that a lot of scholars have recognized uh, in previous publications. Uh, and this is extremely significant in the case of the Lee-Jackson relationship because they came very close uh, to actually getting to that level uh, where a nexus point was reached among the three levels of war, whereby a great victory uh, tactically not only would win the campaign, but also could possibly win the war. Uh, and uh, this supports my second thesis in particular. And then off to the right, the levels of leadership that correspond with the levels of war. Direct leadership uh, is primarily tactical and it extends into the operational level. That means that people like Lee and Jackson uh, were often involved in the directing of uh, battles, uh, which we know very well, as well as campaigns. Uh, organizational leadership, i.e. The, uh, the organizational, the core leaders of the Confederate armies uh, are mainly dwelling at the operational, but also sometimes go into the tactical. Uh, and then the strategic level leader has to be able to master all three. And that makes it a very, very hard individual to find. Uh, strategic level leaders in war are, are quite uh, rare. And the Confederacy ended up having a very finite number. As I say, their bench was much slimmer than the Union's strategic leader bench. They could not afford, strategically, the loss of such leaders. Uh, and uh, uh, in the end, uh, there just weren't enough to go around, and therefore Jackson's loss was irreplaceable in that regard. So what was the national strategic situation uh, in late April 1863, right before the accidental shooting of Stonewall Jackson at Chancellorsville? Uh, and I'm going to review here uh, in the next several slides the development of the Lee-Jackson relationship uh, and uh, help flesh out for you those four theses that I mentioned. So it is the second full year of the war and militarily in that instrument of national power, the Confederacy is slightly winning with the Army of Northern Virginia led by Lee, Jackson, Longstreet and Stuart uh, in the East. But in the West, things have not gone so well for the new Confederate country. Uh, Vicksburg is, is threatened. It's about to come under siege by Ulysses S. Grant. Tennessee has uh, two-thirds fallen to the Union. Missouri is all but lost. And Arkansas and Louisiana are one-half occupied. Uh, it is not a very good situation in the West, something that Lee and Jackson both recognized and that time was running out for the South, therefore. Uh, and they had won these great victories at Second Manassas uh, and uh, at Fredericksburg. Uh, and then they will win again at Chancellorsville. But Antietam, as you know, the first attempt to get into the North failed. 
Uh, it was a, a tactical draw, but a strategic defeat for the Confederates. Though Jackson uh, won Lee's respect with his handling of the Harper's Ferry operation uh, within the Antietam campaign. Uh, did very, very well there. Uh, the greatest bagging of, of U.S. prisoners until the Second World War. Uh, so clearly in the West, the United States is winning. In the East, the Confederacy is slightly winning. Uh, and uh, that disparity militarily does not bode well for long-term prospects of national survival for the Confederates. The U.S. naval blockade of uh, southern ports is hitting hard by this point in the war, uh, which is hitting the Confederate economic instrument now. Uh, the Emancipation Proclamation also hitting the Confederate Big E, as we call it, the economic instrument, but particularly helping the Union win diplomatically and informationally. Obviously, as we well know, emancipation uh, changes the war policy of the North from a uh, simple reunion of the country to reunion and freeing of a race, uh, which really galvanizes certain segments of the Northern population and turns uh, others off. Uh, but in the end, it is a diplomatic masterstroke because it uh, essentially forces England and France to stay out. Uh, and they were interested in coming in to some levels, to some degree, until the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, by late April 63, uh, the chance of diplomatic intervention is very slim. Operationally, and in the Eastern Theater, in uh, the theater strategic level, we see Joseph Hooker, Fighting Joe, new commander of the Army of the Potomac, take the operational initiative away from Robert E. Lee. Uh, he outnumbers Lee's army by over two to one. Hooker has about 130,000 men. Lee has only 62,500, and he doesn't even have Longstreet with him, who has been sent on detached duty to Southside and Southeastern Virginia to forage for provisions because the Confederate logistical situation is deteriorating badly, uh, not just in the West, but also in the East. It's not a good sign when you have to send a third of your army away to gather provisions. Longstreet ostensibly was also uh, to watch Union activities in that sector uh, of the Eastern Theater. Uh, and so that's the setup to Chancellorsville. But I think it's worthy for us to ask, how did we get to this point and how did the Lee-Jackson relationship grow so that they get to the point of Chancellorsville and are able to achieve what many historians would claim was Robert E. Lee's greatest victory? How did we get to this point? Well, this these pictures show us uh, some Matthew Brady uh, wartime views uh, of uh, Antietam and, uh, or Alec, their Gardner photos rather. And you can see here the iconic Dunker Church in the bottom uh, photo, which uh, is very well known to most viewers, I would think. And I show this for you uh, to help you understand that this incursion into the North in uh, the fall of 1862 was very likely the brainchild of Lee and Jackson together. Uh, it was not just Robert E. Lee's idea, Stonewall, Stonewall. Jackson, Hello? Stonewall Jackson had been trying uh, to get into the North since the beginning of the war. And uh, in 1861, following the Battle of First Manassas, uh, recommended uh, to his superiors in the Confederate Army of Virginia, as it was then called, outside of Washington, uh, let's get into the North now and hit them hard. Uh, and of course, this was far too strategically radical for a Confederacy that had developed a uh, 
defensive national military strategy at that point. By this period of the war, uh, a little over a year later, uh, the Confederate National Command Authority in Richmond, as well as Robert E. Lee, had become a little more radicalized. And uh, due to destruction that had occurred previously under John Pope in Virginia, uh, and for Lee personally, the burning of a family home on the Virginia Peninsula, as well as the ransacking of Arlington, brought him a little closer to Jackson's more, uh, shall we say, hard-handed approach. Uh, and uh, I do make the point in the book that uh, Jackson probably influenced Lee. Uh, the smoking gun is not entirely present, but there's a lot of smoke regarding this first incursion. And the idea was to get into Pennsylvania. And I'll speak later as to what they wanted to do when they got into Pennsylvania. Uh, but it, it's not going to happen. They will be stopped by George McClellan at Sharpsburg, despite the great uh, sub-victory at Harper's Ferry. And so this attempt to get into the North and win the war for the Confederacy at a very critical period in the fall of 1862 is going to fail. Uh, but that did nothing to deter the growth of the relationship between Lee and Jackson. Uh, Jackson had not performed well on the Virginia Peninsula prior to this campaign, but he had redeemed himself uh, by the end of this campaign, campaign in Robert E. Lee's eyes, uh, primarily through what he had done uh, first at Cedar Mountain, uh, then at Second Manassas, and then uh, finally with the capture of Harper's Ferry. And so after this campaign, the Lee-Jackson relationship is on a very strong trajectory towards uh, a friendship and a very deep professional trust, very deep indeed. These are the Union opponents of George McClellan. Uh, they, pro excuse me, of Robert E. Lee, uh, and you'll see some familiar faces there: George McClellan and Fitz John Porter, one of his primary lieutenants. I spend some time talking about them in the second chapter, uh, in particular. Uh, you'll see there John Pope also defeated at Second Manassas very handsomely uh, by Lee and Jackson and Longstreet's command team. Ambrose Burnside defeated at Fredericksburg and uh, Joseph Hooker, who will succeed the hapless Burnside, who realized that he was not a particularly good general. You have to hand it to old Burn. He, he knew he wasn't that good and wasn't suited for the job. Hooker bragged that he would uh, make Lee ingloriously fly at Chancellorsville. Well, instead, uh, it was uh, the Germans of Oliver Otis Howard's Corps, the 11th Corps, posted on the extreme right flank at Chancellorsville, the Union line, that were forced to run. Uh, and uh, uh, I get into detail about what exactly happened at Chancellorsville vis-a-vis -vis, uh, Jackson's attack against those troops. All of these gentlemen failed to crack the Lee-Jackson code and were not able uh, to defeat the team. Uh, that's a pretty serious series of generals here. And uh, uh, I think if it weren't for, for Jackson's death, uh, we might have added another one to this list, but that's just speculation. The top picture here shows uh, the very important aspect of religion in Stonewall Jackson's life. Now, this is fairly well known in the historical literature. We know Jackson was very uh, devoted to his faith. Uh, a blue light Presbyterian, uh, Robert E. Lee, uh, an Episcopalian. Uh, they had rather different and divergent religious backgrounds, but both of them believed in the concept of divine providence. Many 19th century Americans believed in this very significant uh, uh, Christian precept, which had to do with the idea that God controls all things, 
around the world uh, and uh, the destinies of men and nations. And therefore, he's got it all under control. Uh, and there is a modicum of human agency, human decision making that can influence one's destiny. This is not predestination, though it sounds similar. Jackson was a little further along in his belief uh, about uh, the relative relationship between God and man. He believed God controlled more than man did by a pretty strong margin. Uh, and he realized that uh, his role was simply to be the instrument of God's will. Lee believed that there was more human agency than Jackson did. Uh, and so I would say that Jackson was a little further on the spectrum than Lee, but they shared this commonality in divine providence, which was a glue to their friendship, which I think is very significant for us to recognize. Uh, and it became particularly noted during the winter of 1862 to 1863, uh, when the two men attended worship services together in the camps at Fredericksburg. The bottom picture shows the location of Jackson's first winter camp at uh, Moss Neck Manor, uh, which still stands today, as many of you probably know, uh, and uh, is open for conferences and other things. Uh, and Jackson had the uh, one of the buildings, one of the outbuildings, converted into his office. He was within an easy ride of Lee's headquarters, and then later changed his headquarters before the Battle of Chancellorsville to be even closer. The two men saw each other a great deal during this winter. And following their great victory at Fredericksburg, they uh, were able to consolidate the burgeoning friendship that had started even while Jackson was still remotely fighting in the Valley Campaign uh, before he joins Lee's army on the peninsula. And uh, even uh, as it survived Jackson's poor performance on the peninsula in the seven days, uh, the friendship is growing through all these campaigns, and it really starts to blossom during this winter. And uh, my third chapter goes into substantial detail on the friendship and the significance of religion and underpinning it. Uh, and this is an important consideration for us as we think about uh, the Lee-Jackson relationship. That friendship underpinned by a common uh, religious understanding of divine providence greatly supported the professional relationship and gave uh, Jackson a very strong voice as a counselor to Robert E. Lee, uh, which I think we need to be quite aware of. So it was during that winter of 62-63 that Lee and Jackson together uh, came up with the primary objectives and outlines of the campaign that would later become the Great Pennsylvania Campaign of the summer of 1863. Uh, it's well known that Jackson had a map of the northern counties of Virginia and the southern counties of Pennsylvania commissioned uh, to Jedediah Hotchkiss, his map maker. And uh, that is very well documented in Hotchkiss's records. Uh, and everyone in Lee and Jackson's staff knew that the two were collaborating on another attempt to try to get into the north. Stymied first at Antietam, now they're going to try again. The idea was to get the jump on Joseph Hooker. Uh, as soon as the roads were dry enough. But the problem that Lee and Jackson ran into as they were planning this northern incursion, and there's more smoke for this gun, I will argue, uh, than there is for the first northern incursion. Uh, the problem here is that Longstreet is not there, and they can't move until they get his divisions back. The Union Army is 
very powerful and is, is waiting for the opportunity to take the initiative, uh, which is what's going to end up happening. And uh, their horses and the condition of their logistics is in a very sad state. And Lee is constantly fretting about this in the winter and actually falls ill uh, with a very bad case of pericarditis, which will plague him for the rest of his life. Uh, he really gets this bad during the winter. Lee falling ill for most of the late winter of, six, of 1863, uh, the early months, sets back the plans that he and Jackson had uh, together come up with. There was a famous conference in March where uh, Lee goes to Richmond and argues for the basic ideas of the movement North. That concept is often, uh, that conference is often conflated with the later conferences more famously uh, uh, remembered prior to the Gettysburg campaign. Well, there was a big one in March too, which is documented in the official records in, in John H. Reagan's memoirs, uh, Postmaster General of the Confederacy. That was where Lee contracted the cold that put him off his feet. That delay proved critical because Hooker is able to jump uh, first before Lee and Jackson are able to gather their forces together and Lee is able to recover physically. And then they must fight defensively the Chancellorsville campaign. Uh, but the ideas and the planning that went into the uh, offensive North are not forgotten uh, by Robert E. Lee. So prior to the fateful campaign of Chancellorsville, which was highly frustrating for Lee and Jackson because they had wanted to move first and now were forced to fight defensively. Uh, there were three strategic options militarily that the Confederacy was facing. Option one, of course, is the crisis at Vicksburg. Option two is the difficulties faced by Confederate uh, Army, of the Ten Army of Tennessee Commander Braxton Bragg facing uh, William S. Rosecrans Union Army uh, and, and, and outnumbered by it uh, in Tennessee. And then in the third option, of course, is to do something in Virginia. Uh, long before the famous Richmond conferences again in uh, May, uh, of 1863, late May after Chancellorsville, Lee is conferring with Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, the Secretary of War. Uh, many messages flitted back and forth between February and April uh, of 1863 about what to do in the spring. And so this strategic conundrum predates the oft-remembered and, and emphasized decision-making that happens in the, uh, in the uh, later spring. Uh, and this supports the fact that Lee and Jackson were together uh, proposing their next attempt to get into the North. Lee absolutely refused, as he would in the later conferences, to dispatch troops to number one or to number two because he knew that they wouldn't get there on time and uh, understood that the case in the Western theater was just about hopeless, uh, that uh, those troops would probably not make much of a difference in the end but would weaken his army. Lee and Jackson together understood that the only prospects for real Confederate victory by this point in the war resided with them in the Eastern theater. Uh, and that is a very important consideration. Um, I don't buy the arguments that uh, some historians have made in the last 25 years that Lee was myopically concerned with the Eastern theater. I think he correctly understood that the war was lost in the West. 
maybe not in Tennessee, but certainly in the Mississippi River Valley, uh, and that it was fruitless strategically to dispatch forces out there. Uh, and if you read uh, particularly my chapter three, uh, you will see uh, my argumentation on that. So let's talk about the Lee-Jackson relationship the day before Jackson is shot at Chancellorsville. This is pretty important for us to understand my major theses of the book, and I think uh, readers and viewers will find this interesting. As I've indicated, Jackson is now Lee's chief operator because Longstreet is absent on detached duty. He has also become Lee's chief strategic, operational, and tactical advisor, and both of them wish to bring the war into the North. Uh, where they believe the war can actually be won. Only through offensive action can the war be won. Uh, that is based on the historical record uh, that both of them left, and uh, whether or not historians like to reinterpret uh, those historical documents and say that it was wrong-minded at the time, it was believed by both men and by the National Command Authority in Richmond that really only offensive war would finally bring the North to the realization that the Confederacy could not be conquered. Jackson has become one of Lee's few personal friends by this point. Uh, it's well known Lee was rather stoic and didn't reveal his feelings that much. He liked to stay uh, above uh, the uh, emotional fray. William Nelson Pendleton, his chief of artillery, was another personal friend. Uh, and between Pendleton and Jackson, that's about it. Longstreet liked to think he was a close friend of, of Lee's. Uh, but again, the historical record does not support that. Uh, so what Longstreet writes in his memoir, written 45 years after the war, uh, is not supported by other historical documents. Um, I don't believe they were as close uh, as Longstreet later wanted people to think. The relationship between Lee and Jackson was clearly built on a foundation of professional trust, which was demonstrated by their victories that they won together, uh, in which Jackson uh, rose continually in Lee's estimation uh, by this point. And it was undergirded by a strong Christian faith, particularly in the idea of divine providence. Often neglected in this entire analysis is the idea that Jackson and Jeb Stuart were also very close. Uh, they, too, uh, shared a religious bond, uh, and it was that incredible uh, friendship which Jackson and Stuart uh, had shared, almost as strong, if not stronger, than the Lee-Jackson relationship that helped allow the Confederate victory at Chancellorsville. Uh, and uh, this was a very solid second-tier level of leadership that Lee could rely upon uh, with the Stuart-Jackson tie. Now, that does not diminish the role of Longstreet. He also was critical to what I call the Great Triumvirate, uh, which had led to uh, several Confederate victories. So Longstreet plays his role, too. But in, on the 1st of May, 1863, he's not there. And he wasn't there for most of the winter when the Lee-Jackson friendship is consolidated. What did Jackson mean to the Confederacy? This is important for us to understand so that we know why his death created such an inflection point in the minds of Confederates. He had a reputation as a winning general, uh, obviously, and paired in the public's eyes with Robert E. Lee. Uh, and uh, there was an understanding that the two together were invincible. This is in editorials throughout Confederate newspapers that I uh, obtained. He was seen as the beau ideal of the morality 
of the cause uh, and that his moral character as a Christian soldier was uh, unreproached. Uh, when he dies, uh, there is a great deal of soul searching religiously throughout the South. What does this mean? Uh, have we put too much uh, uh, trust in an arm of flesh and not in the Almighty? Asked many preachers uh, in the end of May and early June of 1863 following Jackson's demise. Uh, this was a very significant moral blow, therefore, when Jackson dies because he was seen as essentially the champion of the Confederate character. Uh, the public understood his value to Lee and intrinsically got it that the two were a team. Uh, he was seen as uh, especially significant in the Valley of Virginia uh, as the great protector, uh, not only because of what he had done in the Shenandoah Valley, but also because of his close ties that he had had in the pre-war years uh, uh, in Lexington and other towns in the Shenandoah Valley. And even in the Confederate government, he had a very strong reputation uh, by the late spring of 1863. Uh, he and Davis had had a rather cool relationship earlier in the war uh, that had been more or less repaired uh, by this point. And uh, Jackson was very respected by Jefferson Davis and by Secretary of War Seddon. Seddon, in fact, is going to be very affected by the death of Jackson, as I'm about to mention. Jackson will ultimately uh, fall uh, victim to the complications born of his accidental wounding on the night of May 2nd. So eight days later, he will succumb to uh, those complications. We think it was probably pneumonia, could have been sepsis. Uh, he's dropped twice from the litter that bears him away from the field, uh, and it's possible his lung was punctured uh, by one of those drops from shoulder height. Uh, very bad. Uh, he fell on his injured arm, and of course Lee says, uh, you have lost your left arm, but I have lost my right after the amputation. Initially, Jackson was recovering nicely, but then this uh, disease set in uh, that ultimately is going to take his life, and he will die in that little uh, plantation office at Guinea Station. Uh, there you see the map drawn by Jedediah Hotchkiss uh, of the southern counties of Pennsylvania and the northern counties of the Valley of Virginia in preparation for what Lee and Jackson proposed to do in the spring, but later would not be able to do jointly. Uh, due to Jackson's death, and uh, the uh, original is owned by the uh, uh, the Handley Library in Winchester. That is a copy from the Library of Congress. So when Stonewall Jackson dies, the effect on the Confederacy and on Robert E. Lee in particular was very, very profound. Uh, Lee himself said uh, to his son, who can fill his place, I do not know. Uh, he wrote General Orders Number 61 to the Army to try to assuage its overall grief, uh, claiming that the spirit of Jackson may be diffused throughout the ranks, and we may be stronger for the fact that we knew him and that his spirit will uh, prevail. I think those were brave words that Lee knew he had to say, uh, but I don't think he necessarily believed them. Um, uh, he certainly believed Jackson had gone to a better place. But he also was very broken up. He cried in his tent uh, to William Nelson Pendleton uh, at least once, maybe twice. Uh, that was in the archives at UNC, um, in the Pendleton records. Uh, he is, is absolutely overwrought with the death of Jackson. And it's clear to understand that because he's lost a good friend as well as his principal lieutenant, 
operationally and his strategic advisor. He is irreplaceable to Robert E. Lee. And the, the public started to figure this out. Uh, the soldiers in the Army Northern Virginia very much understood this, uh, and they missed Jackson as much as Lee did. Uh, they called it a national calamity, as did Jefferson Davis. A national calamity. Those are strong words. God's will be done, said some of the more stoic ones. Uh, one soldier I thought was particularly poignant when he said, all hopes of peace and independence are vanished for forever with the death of Jackson. There were many others uh, who wrote this, and I tried to do a very comprehensive survey of soldiers' letters, uh, and the vast majority wrote in ways like this in the weeks after Chancellorsville. This is following the Confederate victory, which tells us about the impact of Jackson's death. Uh, in Richmond, uh, there was a great sense of loss. Uh, the first great public funeral in American history happens in Richmond, Virginia for Stonewall Jackson. It in many ways presages the funeral uh, for Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and uh, James Seddon uh, said that his loss is irreparable. Seddon gave a three-page single-space eulogy that was entered into the Confederate uh, Congre congressional record uh, about uh, the loss of Jackson. Uh, that's in the official records for anyone to find. In Virginia, the newspapers were unanimous in the loss that the country had, had, had faced. Uh, he has fallen and a nation weeps, said one editor, and that's representative of many of the newspaper editorials that I consulted. I, I looked at uh, a good two dozen newspapers throughout the, uh, the Confederacy to draw these conclusions. In the Deep South and in the Carolinas, the idea was mirrored. Uh, one editor said, it's the most serious loss we have yet sustained in the war. The idea of the national calamity was repeated verbatim. Uh, and uh, there were other comments, as you can see there, that indicated uh, two people far away from the Virginia theater uh, and uh, facing their own troubles from Union incursions in Tennessee and in Mississippi, for instance. They understood that the loss of Jackson was a national loss and a strategic level uh, uh, inflection point, as we would call it today. Interestingly, overseas, the blow was felt as well. One of the British newspapers said this is assuredly the most fatal shot of the war to the Confederates. And in the North, uh, none other than Oliver Otis Howard would later remark after his death, General Lee could not replace him. Abraham Lincoln uh, at the time also uh, indicated that the loss of Jackson was uh, just about irreplaceable for the Confederacy. So none other than the Union president realizes this. I think this is pretty strong evidence of the significance of Jackson's death at the strategic level. So after Jackson's death, what happened then? Well, we know that Robert E. Lee had to reorganize his army. And this is one of the most profound effects of the death of Jackson on a very basic military level, on the military instrument of national power. The loss of Jackson changes the ball game. Uh, in the Eastern Theater and for the Army in Northern Virginia, mainly because, as you can see on the bottom there, uh, the great reorganization from two wings into three corps. And uh, Stuart still remains, of course, as Chief of Cavalry, but Jackson's death forces the elevation of newer corps commanders like Richard Ewell and A.P. Hill, who had served under Jackson earlier, and his rather strict and uh, punctilious style of giving orders. 
Uh, they had about a week and a half each to get adjusted to their new levels of responsibility. Something I say is hard for any leader at any level. You need a seasoning time. Well, they didn't get it. Lee didn't have time to counsel them. We think he talked to Yule about being more aggressive like his uh, old commander. Uh, there's no evidence he counseled Hill. But Lee didn't have time to do much counseling at all because they move from their camps at Fredericksburg to begin the movement north uh, literally a week and a half after Ewell and Hill uh, arrive and take their new commands. This, of course, as most people understand, is going to bear ill fruit uh, in the Pennsylvania campaign. I don't think it had to. I don't think it, the result was foreordained. But the point is that Jackson's death caused all of this. The other interesting thing I say in the final chapter on the Pennsylvania campaign that I think is significant for us is that uh, Stuart was so broken up over the loss of Jackson as much as Lee was and was mourning him as the uh, campaign unfolds uh, and was possibly, along with other events, other losses that Stuart had suffered, was uh, mentally unbalanced going into the Northern incursion. Did that play a role in his wild ride around the Union Army, which then made him unavailable to Lee as the Confederate infantry crossed the Mason-Dixon line uh, and uh, brought him to Gettysburg late. Uh, I can't prove it, but I give some evidence in the uh, in the book about how close Stuart and Jackson were and the reactions that Stuart had to Jackson's death. I think it's quite possible Stuart was trying to do more than just retrieve his fallen reputation from Brandy Station. Uh, I think he was also hurting from the loss of his friend. Uh, so in the end, folks, we see the loss of Stonewall Jackson being a very important contingency point for the fate of the Confederacy. Uh, it does, does not foreordain the loss of the war. Uh, it does not mean that the Union is absolutely going to win, and, and it doesn't mean uh, anything necessarily about how Pennsylvania is going to play out uh, once Lee starts moving north. Uh, but it does mean that this reorganization is going to play a, a role that it otherwise wouldn't have played. And uh, therefore, the whole history of the campaign is different because Jackson is not at the side of Robert E. Lee as he moves north into Pennsylvania at this critical juncture of the war when so much still lay uh, uh, in store for both the Union and the Confederacy. And that, folks, is my presentation. I hope you've enjoyed it. I've enjoyed giving it, and I look forward to your questions. Christian. Fascinating. Uh, so folks, please uh, be sure to sign into YouTube or Facebook to ask your questions. Uh, we've got a few minutes. Uh, and as a, before those questions come in, I'm, I'm curious, uh, Christian, uh, what did you find in your course of your research from the personal writings of Lee and, and Jackson that might uh, give evidence to the, to the deep relationship that they had? That's a great, uh, great question. And I poured over every available letter I could find, uh, archival and uh, and published. And a lot of the Lee letters, of course, are published. And uh, there have been many great scholars uh, previously who have uh, you know poured over these letters, uh, Elizabeth Brown Pryor, Douglas Southall Freeman, Gary Gallagher. Uh, and uh, what I was able to discern was particularly the relationship was what you could see it in the reaction that uh, Lee had to Jackson's death and how broken up Lee was. 
Um, I think that it was much more than just Lee's reaction to the loss of a very important professional colleague. The way he writes to his brother, the way he writes to his sons, the way that he writes to his wife uh, about the death of Jackson is so personal. Uh, the way he talks to, to Pendleton, and Pendleton uh, wrote this down. Uh, and then later, after the war, the way that Robert E. Lee refers to Jackson in a rather tender way in post-war writings uh, and interviews that he had at Washington College, all this indicates just how close the Lee-Jackson relationship was. So that's primary source documentation. Uh, there was also evidence from Lee's staff officers who observed what uh, the loss of Jackson meant to Lee uh, later in the war. And uh, one of those staff officers uh, wrote a very, very telling statement, which to me really, uh, you know, put the, the icing on the cake on this particular question. Uh, and uh, he said um, that uh, my general, not a day goes by in which my general uh, does not miss that great and good man uh, every day. Essentially words very similar to that. And that was in 1864. That was uh, Venable. That was uh, that was uh, Charles Venable who wrote that, one of Lee's personal aides. Uh, and so there are other, I could give you other ones. Uh, there are insinuations in Marshall's letters uh, and uh, in uh, 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 Taylor's uh, letters and his early post-war books that indicate the staff picked up on this as well. Jackson, for his part, a lot more of his letters are preserved than people think, uh, wrote very affectionately about Lee before he died, uh, saying that he would follow him blindfolded, for instance. Uh, and then later on, he writes to his wife uh, uh, saying that I, I, I do not want to leave this army. I want to stay at the side of my commanding general instead of taking an independent command in the valley, which was an option afoot in the late winter and early spring of 1863. He, he absolutely says no. Uh, he also had some interviews with one uh, itinerant member of the staff, uh, who uh, is uh, Alexander Bottler, uh, who becomes one of his liaisons with Richmond. And uh, he's a, a congressman also from one of the Valley districts who happens to be one of Jackson's staff members. And he confides in him about Lee and about how much he respects him and how much he enjoys working with him. So you get this from both sides in the primary source documentation. You mentioned in your talk that uh, Lee obviously had a relationship with, with Jeb Stewart as well uh, that, that might have had a, a different dynamic. Uh, curious, what, how would you characterize Jackson's relationship with Stewart? It was actually, I would say it was more overtly, fundamentally Christian. Uh, and that comes from the Stuart letters that I looked at, as well as uh, Jackson's own statements about Stuart to his wife uh, and some exchanges that uh, Stuart and uh, Mariana, uh, Jackson's wife, had after Jackson's death. Uh, Jackson uh, told his wife uh, or no, Stuart told, Stuart told um, Mariana that Jackson was the dearest friend I've ever had. And that's almost a verbatim quote. Uh, the two got to know each other early in the war uh, when Jackson was initially stationed in 1861 at Harper's Ferry and Stuart served with him there. 
So they have a very long history together and it's a successful history too. And I think that, uh, and in the winter of 62, 63, there's this several funny episodes where Stuart can, can rib the, the stoic and, and, uh, often cliched, hard-nosed Jackson. And Jackson had a sense of humor people forget about. But but Stuart could bring that out like nobody, nobody else, and uh, make Jackson laugh at himself. And uh, there were many instances of this. They were documented throughout the war. Uh, and uh, and Jackson just enjoyed Stuart's company. Uh, they really, they just were, were com compatriots. It was an odd couple much like Jackson and Lee were, but there's no question that the two enjoyed an equally close, if not closer relationship. So any, any projections about how the close relationship of, of Lee and Jackson, how that might've impacted on, on other higher level officers in the Confederate States Army, uh, excluded, exclusive of Stuart? Right, well, um, Longstreet, just to, to start with him, uh, Longstreet was, I think, surprised at how quickly the Lee-Jackson relationship grew, considering Jackson's bad performance on the seven days, which is very clear in the record. And, and I definitely document, uh, he just didn't do well, mainly because he was so exhausted from the Valley campaign. And Longstreet doesn't ever quite forgive Jackson for that bad performance because Longstreet's men suffered for it. Uh, and I think... Uh, there was a, there's very, very little evidence uh, in Longstreet's writings during the war or later that he was jealous of Jackson's relationship with Lee. Uh, you can pick up tinges in from Manassas to Appomattox, his great memoir written, uh, as I said, 45 years after the fact, uh, that he believed that Lee probably listened to Jackson too much and not enough to him. But how much of that is post-war bias, you know, on the part of Longstreet trying to boost his own image? which needed boosting by that point in the eyes of many Southerners. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, as far as the other generals are concerned, um, we know William, uh, you know, William Dorsey Pender never really liked Jackson, but he respected him and he understood in his letters, which are available out there, they're now uh, published, uh, he understood just how critical Jackson was to winning. Uh, for Robert E. Lee and for the successful command team of the Army in Northern Virginia. So, and Pender was 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 echoed by many of the staff officers, uh, both Lee and Jackson and Longstreet, by the way. Interestingly, many of them admitted this as well. Uh, and uh, uh, you will see this even in uh, uh, D.H. Hill, who was a one-time member of the Confederate High Command and he gets sent to North Carolina after Fredericksburg. Now, he was a relative of Jackson, so probably he was a little biased, but even from his post down in North Carolina, D.H. Hill uh, writes about the, uh, the significance of Jackson for the army writ large. I could give you other examples, uh, but uh, that just gives you a taste of, of, of how Jackson was regarded by other general officers. Uh, Hill did not, A.P. Hill did not like him, that's very well known, uh, and they had a feud. Interestingly, when Jackson shot in the in the wilderness at Chancellorsville on May 2nd, it is Hill who supposedly cradles his head until he is removed on the stretcher. Uh, did they make up before uh, Jackson's death? Probably not. I don't think Hill was uh, glad Jackson died. I don't think that he was uh, uh, incredibly sad either. 
Uh, we know Jackson staff uh, wrote about how hard Hill was on them before Yule comes in and takes over. Uh, Hill temporarily controlled Jackson's wing and, and Jackson staff did not like Hill and he didn't like them. Uh, what that says about the Hill uh, Jackson relationships hard to say. Uh, Yule initially didn't like Jackson either in the Valley, thought he was a Martinet. And then Yule came around later before he's wounded at second Manassas, at least to realize that Jackson was a wonder uh, and that Jackson would win. So Yule respected Jackson. I don't think he liked him that much, but he respected him a great deal. So as we close, you you referenced uh, your your next book, which hopefully will be out in the spring. Can you can you tell us a little bit more about it? Well, thank you. Uh, yes, uh, it's called uh, Southern Strategies: Why the Confederacy Failed, and uh, University Press of Kansas will be publishing it. It's a collection of essays at the strategic level of war, analyzing why the South will lose its bid for independence. Uh, it's a uh, a purely military study, uh, much like uh, the Great Partnership is, uh, and uh, uh, interested uh, readers will be able to to find it when uh, I have a, a an actual site and a, and a and a link. They'll be able to find that on my personal author's website, www.christianbkeller.com, all one word, christianbkeller.com, where all of my other books are also available, and I have recorded lectures on there. Uh, so I'll be posting that when it's when it's available. Great. Well, Christian Keller, thank you so much for a fascinating talk today. Uh, please join us uh, next week on November 10th at noon when Pen Peter Henriquez will be here to talk about what made George Washington tick. In the meantime, thank you again all for tuning in and please be well. Bye bye.